Good day, good afternoon, whatever time it is, wherever you are. Thank you for joining us for Leonard Peikoff Lectures with James Valiant. And today it's Some Notes About Tomorrow. Now this is a speech, a talk that Leonard Peikoff gave one of his Ford Hall Forum speeches, 1992. Some Notes About Tomorrow. So this was about the news, the events of the day. Well, does that still apply today? The great thing about Leonard Peikoff analyzing the news is, of course, he is applying abstract principles in a way that are going to apply at any time, but especially the three stories that he addressed in this talk, prescient, almost almost uh, fortune teller. James Valiant, how are you doing this afternoon? I am doing wonderfully. Um, uh, really a wonderful day here in California, and this is an amazing lecture. I mean, 30 years ago, Dr. Leonard Peikoff, I mean, 30 years ago this year, in fact, the spring of 92, so we're about 30, uh, 30 years exactly from when he gave this talk, and there are notes about tomorrow, and here we kind of are in the tomorrow that he was predicting, and boy, are we in the tomorrow that he was predicting. <laughs> it really but, is extraordinary. I was just becoming a hardcore Ayn Rand fan, objectivist, at the, right around this time, early 90s, so I remember very fondly when this lecture appeared and thinking, Oh, this is great. It's all about current events. But the current events of the time were the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, now this is retro and will sound disconnected, but you'll hear why it's not. The great uh, economic success in Japan and what it was doing to, or Americans thought it was doing to the American automobile com uh, industry. And then finally, the third, and this is, I, I'm really looking forward to talking about this, his recommendations with regard to the re-election of George Bush, not the Bush we think of, George Bush the third elected in 2000, but this is 1992. George Bush the second, I don't know, his father was never president. George Bush the second was up for re-election. Amazing what he had to say then and what has happened since then. But first and foremost, and what he gives the, the majority of the time to, he talks about the collapse of the Soviet Union and why it was inevitable, but also, well, what does it really mean? He says, yes, it all happened. The collapse of the Soviet Union, standard explanation being Gorbachev. And Leonard Peikoff says, Gorbachev is no champion of individual rights or the free market. As he regularly tells people, he is still an avowed communist. And even if he were somehow a pro-capitalist in wolves clothing, love that expression, <laughs> How could he ever have convinced his comrades in the party, the KGB and the Red Army, to go along with his new policies? And, and that's, Leonard, that's yes. the key here, because so frequently, especially in the West, you know, conservatives will say, oh, it was Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher and the Pope who did it. And yep. certainly international opinion by then had turned against the Soviet Union. But what really happened uh, you know, in the early 1990s, and it was the great news event, surely, of that period, um, the collapse of the Soviet empire, which had under its dictatorial thumb a third of the globe. But the real reason for its collapse was the internal collapse of Marxism, not only among the Russian people at the time, but among major members of the Soviet state had simply lost faith in Marxism. And that's what was the real cause. And just on that grounds, Dr. Peikoff is getting rid of the clutter and getting right to the uh, real essence. Why did the Soviet Union so suddenly and so completely collapse from within? Exactly right. He, he 
talks about uh, what was going on at the time. Not just that we had Reagan and we had Thatcher and we had Gorbachev, which he discusses, but he mentions uh, people would blame it on the communism was failing, people were starving. And he points out earlier generations of communist leaders like Lenin and Stalin had an easy solution to the problem, mass murder of the starving, murder in the millions. But you cannot have a totalitarian regime and this policy of mass murder unless the leaders feel that they have a moral sanction, which justifies their actions, answers their enemies around the world, and absolves themselves of blame. He he goes right to the ideas, a Reagan, a Thatcher, a Gorbachev, the starvation of the masses, the infiltration of rock and roll, into, none of these things would have had an impact without the collapse of the ideas that made it all possible in the first place. Exactly. I mean, for gosh sakes, the Soviet Union was an economic basket case throughout its history. <laughs> it's not as though suddenly in 1990, 1989 to 1992, suddenly uh, Russia had become an economic basket case. They yes. were economic basket case throughout. And uh, what a great point too. How did Lenin and Stalin intentionally starve tens of millions of civilians under their own rule? Without the only, collapsing. Without collapsing. The only way you can get away with that, of course, is to believe you have some kind of moral high ground, mm -hmm. some moral justification that you're doing something righteous. But imagine the ability to starve intentionally tens of millions of civilians as a matter of policy. But that was the reality. They had the moral high ground back then. And somehow by 1990, 1992, the Soviet Union had lost that moral confidence. And that was the key. Exactly right. Leonard, Leonard Pigoff says the reason communism collapsed is not that people were so poor, but that their leaders could no longer find a moral sanction for murder. No one over there believed in Marxism anymore, and few even pretended to do so. That's it. You didn't have the the the, the, the pronouncements that we got used to uh, from you know back in the days of Lenin and Stalin and Khrushchev. We got used to these pounding propagandists. We will bury you. We're going to lead you in the leave you in the dust technologically. We'll our material progress will far exceed you. You didn't have that kind of confidence, and it was waning dramatically in the seventies and eighties. Until by the time you get to nineteen ninety nineteen ninety one. Really, there are a few voices, even within the communist world, who are defending the Soviet system. And it wasn't sudden either. You know, he points out, Leonard Pigoff points out that Marxism died a protracted death in Russia with each new generation. It lost more of the faith it needed from its subjects until finally the critical point was reached. People want to say, well, but does people suddenly stop believing in Marxism? But as Leonard Pigoff points out, this occurred over the course of time. And, and yes, the injection of Western ideas through the opening of communication due to technology was a part of that, but there was no sudden collapse. This was an ideological collapse. And it was built, built on the internal weaknesses of Marxism, of dialectical materialism. As Dr. Peikoff so brilliantly points out, uh, in contrasting, for example, medieval Christianity to uh, communism in the Soviet Union, the, the whole theoretical difference between Christianity and uh, communism. Christianity doesn't promise any earthly success, quite the opposite. It's, it says, enjoy your misery here on earth, that'll get your brownie points in the kingdom of God. Uh, they're not promising any earthly rewards. In fact, you may be a miserable suffering, in fact, it's a glory to be a martyr. 
to be tortured to death for your faith would be a wonderful thing to happen. So yes. far from far from promising any material success or earthly rewards, uh, on the other, Christianity said everything was in some supernatural uh, fairyland, whereas uh, Marxism may it was very religious in its predictions of a nirvana utopia that communism would produce in the future, but it made specific predictions of material progress here on earth. We will we will bury you, said Khrushchev to America, right? We will we will beat you guys materially, technologically, economically, we'll leave you in the dust. And so as decade after decade of Soviet rule goes on and things aren't getting better, but they do hear about progress being made in the West, tremendous progress being made in the West, uh, and the Soviets were no mood to let the, their own citizens know how people lived in the West, how much better people lived in the West, but how how long can you go on saying, oh yeah, just around the court, prosperity's just around the corner, folks, we're going to bury the West, we're going to give you great wealth and material prosperity, and each decade, of course, they lose credibility. The material progress never manifests. In fact, they, compared to the West, they appear to be suffering more and more and more. And at some point, you lose all credibility when you're, it's total gaslighting, as we would call it today. At some point, people are going to trust their eyes and their own starving stomachs over whatever line the government is giving them. Yeah, there's a really fascinating part here where Dr. Peacock gives a, uh, a report an exchange here between an American reporter and a 76-year-old language teacher who is a, who is a supporter and apologist uh, for traditional communism and uh, trying to defend the old system. And uh, so from, from the paper, it says, she was very disappointed, the 76-year-old language teacher, uh, to hear that the British Communist Party had disappeared altogether and the American one nearly so. And then she says, but tell me frankly, do you have poor people in America? When told that, of course, there are poor people in America, she seemed very, very relieved. So th this is kind of goes back to the whole, um, actually, I'm going to steal from this from uh, Yaron Brook, I don't know, the last, last uh, thing that he did. Um, he was talking about, you know, the question always comes up, you know, when you're talking about socialism or communism and trying to defend it. Well, what about the poor? And uh, and as he put, you know, what what they they're not really asking. They don't really care about the poor. What they're really asking is, um, you know, what about my life? <laughs> where you know where I don't have a, a sense of self-esteem to be efficacious, efficacious and live my life successfully. You know where. You know, what about poor me? You know, I can't trust myself to actually live successfully. What about me? Um, and so going back to this, this uh, language teacher, she's like, oh, thank goodness. You know, there's still poor people in America. Oh, that, there might be hope for me yet because I am completely incompetent in terms of uh, actually living. <laughs> well, it's extraordinary too, because we still have, we still have communist countries. And what possible explanation can there be other than in North Korea, half of the citizens are told and try to convince themselves it's true that in America, sure, there are rich people, but there are these enormous ghettos, these enormous numbers of starving in the streets, poor people, the same thing the Russians were told, the Soviets were told over the years. And it's getting harder and harder for the North Koreans to keep that information out. The Russians couldn't do it. 
And it was just obvious, not just from movies, which, you know, you can show anything in a movie, but from the news of that information that America is not starving, is not poor, that we don't do horrible things to our lower classes. Well, in North Korea, where you have death by starvation as a you know significant cause of death within the country today, and the reality is that in the United States, um, you know, uh, being overweight is one of the problems of poverty in America. Overweight, you <laughs> know, uh, is yeah. one of the health issues in America for the poor. For the poor, that mm-hmm. contrast, that contrast cannot be hidden forever. Right. A combination of that in North Korea with another factor that Leonard Pigoff identifies that kept communism going so long. And this will sound like today's news. Leonard Pigoff says, observe how intensely nationalistic were the appeals made to the Russians, even under communism. Nationalism is collectivism, but with the nation, and in the end, this means the ethnic group or the race, as the favored group one to be defended, extolled, and identified with. And and let me just add his next sentence here, because yes, we see this. We see this nationalism. We see the dangers of nationalism in America. Leonard Pigoff says, please don't confuse nationalism with patriotism. The patriot says, my country is right, and therefore I love it. The nationalist says, I love my country right or wrong because I belong to this group, as against those aliens abroad. When we identify why is the American right falling apart? What is the challenge that we run into? Why can't we get on? But why aren't they liberty minded? Why aren't they focused on individual rights anymore? Nationalism is one of the animating forces of the right right now. One of the commentators that Peacock quotes here made a really good point here. Sure, we can reject communism, but collectivism is at the heart of our society. We're not, we're never going to really abandon collectivism. And more than that, when you back up a little bit, international communism, that's the difference between, uh, say, the communists and the Nazis. The Nazis and the fascists were nationalists. In the Nazi case, they added racism to their nationalism. And so, theoretically speaking, Marxism was a transracial, transnational, international movement. But of course, it was also a collectivist movement. It was a collectivist movement with a very abstract collectivism. Social class is everything. And that cuts across everything. Well, that's a very abstract thing to hold in your mind. Uh, Very hard for the ordinary person to actually hold in their mind. This, uh, what is in most cases, in any event, a totally floating abstraction uh, uh, in the minds of Marxists. Collectivism in general encourages a much cruder kind of collectivist thinking, tribalism, what Ayn Rand described in global balkanization. And so even the Soviets, even in the heyday of the Soviet Union, they were emphasizing nationalism. They were emphasizing Russian pride. And it's really interesting to note that by the time the Soviet Union is collapsing in the early 1990s, that's what's really invigorating them. It's not as though they're embracing the ideas of you know, what was called Western classical liberalism or the free market or individualism, individual rights, none of those concepts were dominant. The dominant ideas that were helping bring down the Soviet Union at the time, and this is really ominous about today and what's going on, say, in Russia and their war with Ukraine, uh, religion and nationalism were what were taking over. And even within the Soviet Union, though, there were preferred ethnic groups. 
if you were Russian, Russian, you were you had a leg up within the Soviet Union, say over other ethnic groups. There was all kinds of anti-Semitism even under this international communism uh, that the Soviet Union had. So it was all kind of a joke to begin with, and emotionally, uh, personally, I think more people identified the nationalism and the collectivist aspects of it. And then by the time they lost faith in Marxism, they're embracing religion. Religion uh, had always been a big feature of, of Russian history, deeply mystical, deeply mystical people. Communism was just another kind of mysticism in its detour in this uh, giant mystical history of theirs. As Dr. Peikoff points out, Russia and most of Eastern Europe really didn't go through a Renaissance and an enlightenment like Western Europe did, like the United States, North America did, a totally different experience. It's as though Russia and Eastern Europe are still living with a medieval mentality. Exactly and right. Not true. Yeah, and Leonard Pigoff sums that up. The communists lied so often, so fundamentally and so verifiably that no one, including the faithful, could keep the faith any longer. <laughs> he says, so Marxism collapsed, except, of course, in American universities. <laughs> and boy, is that the truth. Anyone who's been in American universities in the 1990s know that there may not be Marxists in Europe anymore, but there are plenty of Marxists still at great American universities. And, and not in the economics departments, mind you, but like the literature no. departments and the philosophy departments, which Especially is really in the humanities, but it's infecting everything now. Everything, yeah. But Leonard Pioff said, well, the question then is, well, how do we get to where we are now, where the country is still being run by an avowed KGB, former KGB agent, going to war with a war of aggression for no reason against a neighbor? How do we get to where we are now? And Leonard Pigoff says, but what remains under the debris, the debris of the ideology, is the essence which was receptive to it in the first place, the essence which remains alive and unchallenged now. And what essence do I mean? The two strongest forces in Russia now, all the papers declare, are religion and nationalism, often working in tandem. In other words, the forces are variants of mysticism, altruism, collectivism. That did not change just because communism collapsed. That still animates Russia. Um, many of us thought when they collapse, well, you know, at least it's a sign they're moving in the right direction. And in some ways they did for a while, but their version of capitalism was black market, don't even call it capitalism. Small wonder then that authoritarianism continued to gain and gain more power till the present day. Yeah, there's another excellent quote uh, where Leonard Peikoff talks about, you know, Mr. Nixon and other pragmatic Republicans who are just trying to throw money at the, the Soviet Union now. And he says so aptly, <laughs> You cannot bribe a country into sharing your beliefs. Money is impotent against ideas. All that our billions will do is to give potential dictators over there more time to organize because we will be keeping things going for them for another winter or two. Most of the billions, of course, will disappear down the bureaucratic mouths and probably into such still existing institutions as the Red Army and the KGB. Well, that is what happened. That is exactly what happened and is happening unto this day. Well, until we started, at least, pulling back a little bit economically. But what we were doing, having any diplomatic relations after Putin took over, clearly an authoritarian, clearly a guy murdering his opponents, ending any free speech, making uh, demonstrations illegal. And there we are continuing to subsidize this authoritarian ruler in the hopes that we would coax them uh, towards a more free uh 
uh, position, that is, you know, hopeless, obviously, and a contradiction in terms. And what we did was we created the enemy, in effect, that is now uh, empowered to invade Ukraine. And then he goes on, uh, Leonard Peacock goes on, he says, you know, now the evil I fear here, let me stress, is not Mr. Yeltsin, who seems to be a brave and honest man. It, the evil is Nixon and Bush. The evil is bankrupts, bankrupting our own nation in order to feed potentially aggressive hordes who have no idea what to do and will not learn it from handouts, will not learn it from handouts. <laughs> Again, it's just amazing. This, he just does such a great uh Yes. Well, speaking of handouts, speaking of money, if I could take just a moment, because we do have a super chat from Bonnie and we want to say thank you, Bonnie. Thank you, Bonnie. And on that note, I'm sure folks have noticed some folks in the chat are now in green. They've got a special logo. They've got access to these funny emojis. They're very cute and charming of the four primary hosts of the Daily Objective. What is going on? There's a membership now available to the Ayn Rand Center UK's YouTube channel, where you can sponsor the channel for just $5 a month. And this is fun because YouTube's handling the uh, conversion. So it can be five pounds, five dollars, five euros. Well, those of us in the States obviously make out a little there with the current exchange rates. If your exchange rate is radically different, YouTube will convert that for you. So you can become a member, not just of the Ayn Rand Center UK, which I know most of you already are at aynrandcenter.co.uk, click membership. But you can also be a member of the YouTube channel. Now, this is fun. Your name will highlight in green. In fact, even if you don't super chat, we're going to give you extra attention just because you're yes. a member. Yes. And you can contribute through it. Now, this is totally separate from the other website. But even then, if you were, a, say, a 10 pound a month website supporter and you want to give a little extra, join the Ayn Rand Center, or if you're not a member yet of ARC UK and you're like, I've only got $5 a month for this kind of thing, join, become a member on the Ayn Rand Center. You, can, you get the cool logo, you get access to the cool emoji. There are yes. other special features. The channel can now create events that are just for YouTube subscribers. And there are talks about some of that. We'll see what comes. We don't want to yes. hold too much back from there, all of you we know and love. But <laughs> there are so great, have... exciting things in the works that are that are happening. Get, yes, get and in so, on the ground floor. Yes. Yeah. And so at the on the YouTube channel, when you see that subscribe button, you'll now also have a join button. So now you can hit, hit that join button and join for whatever monthly amount you can you feel you can subscribe. Yeah. Uh, and you'll be uh, you'll have not only priority in our questions here, but you'll have access to all kinds of perks that only paid subscribers get. Uh, <laughs> one of the cool things that's happening is in a couple of weeks, we'll be starting three weeks from uh, this Sunday uh, or two weeks from this Sunday. Excuse me. We'll be starting a whole new uh, Sunday workshop on Dr. Leonard Peikoff's classic book, The Ominous Parallels, which is now 40 years old <laughs> and equally perhaps even more prescient than uh this this amazingly prescient uh, uh, speech he gave. So please do consider becoming a paid subscriber. Um, Rosie's working on all kinds of new perks too for paid subscribers. So incidentally, the, the four emoji that you see Daniel posted, great fun. The, those four are just the start. There's more coming. And as we get more members on YouTube, it opens it up where we're allowed to make more of those emojis. We've yes. already got a spot for one and we know who the next great face of Ayn Rand Center UK YouTube emojis is going to be. On my screen, he's sitting on my left here. So there you go. This is going to be fun. Also, um, you will not only get special attention in the YouTube chat. Um, 
I lost my place. What was I just about to say? <sighs> I will remember it in just a moment. But yes, you can join. You can become a member now, both on the website and on YouTube. Again, they're wholly separate, but these are both ways that you can support the center. It's great. It's great fun. You should do that. All the cool kids are doing it, and I'm certainly going to do it too. And I want to thank our members who are on without uh, with us right this second. We've got um, Mar Marcin, uh, Marilyn, Daniel, and Daniel, and Allison, aka Allie, and Fritz, and a nascent and Planet Pellegrino. Planet Pellegrino. <laughs> the Mark, the Mark Pellegrino fan club is also already a member of the Ayn Rand Center UK YouTube channel. Too cool. Too cool. So do it. Make that happen. Now, Leonard Peikoff does point out a rare example of somebody besides the objectivists who understand at least in a way what's going on. He quotes, uh, let's see, this is this is uh, Kyle Fedotov, the Russian vice minister of information and press at the time. And he gives this direct quote from the uh, from the newspaper. We have been educated in the belief that money was evil and the rich were bad, that the ideal was to toil for the state and that he would look after you. What we have to do now is to inform the people and have them convinced that wealth is good, that one has to be selfish. We have to create a society of egoists capable of working hard and observing the law. This way we shall all profit. In Russia, we are 150 million invalids without the necessary consciousness to live a normal life. That, that was from February 22nd of 1992. So FYI. here's a major guy at the, the, the Russian Information Agency, in effect saying that not only is wealth good, but it's based on egoism that we have to be selfish I mean, this guy was reading, I, I mean, there's little doubt in my mind. I don't know if he read Ayn Rand or if he got it from someone who read Ayn Rand, but someone at the Russian Information Bureau there understands the relationship between egoism and freedom and between freedom and wealth. Astonishingly exactly right. Now, Leonard <laughs> Pigoff points out he is the exception. And his note about tomorrow, when he sums this up, he says, in my judgment, Russia and Eastern Europe think Belarus, for example, excuse me, <clears throat> Russia and Eastern Europe are headed inevitably toward a statist finale, another orgy of dictatorship, this time most likely of a nationalist and religious kind. Well, I don't know that Russia is any more religious than they were. They've always been mystic, always been mystical. But if you consider the way that so many people, and you see this in, in newspaper interviews and in print, still support Putin, still regard Putin as he is the man who, who is taking care of Russia. He is what we need in a leader. Yeah. If that is not nationalism and religion, it is religion. I don't know what else and, would and, be. And, and, and he and has embraced Christianity. He yes. has stated, he has quoted the Bible, endorsed Russian orthodoxy, regularly meets with religious leaders. Now, uh, I, it's still an authoritarian country, obviously still the church's uh, under the government's, in effect, thumb. But nonetheless, unlike under communism, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church is now legal and very mm -hmm. active. <laughs> so, yeah, as, of, as of March 18th, he says in, in one of his speeches, uh, trying to justify why he uh, went into Ukraine, started the war, he said, um, quoted, uh, words from the Holy Bible come to my head, he says. 
there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And, and now, again, you have to think of in terms of the context of he's he's thinking of Russians as coming in and saving the day of those people in the the the, the Donbass. If I'm saying that right, or Donbass. Yeah. Um, and uh, to save them, they, these more Russian Ukrainians, um, because they have been subject to genocide from the, I guess, the Eastern Ukrainian Ukrainians, uh, um, allegedly, and, uh, you know, and all of this other garbage that doesn't make any bit of sense. But really, when it really comes down to it, you've got to justify, uh, you have to justify it with altruism. You well, have to lay down altruism. your life for your friends. <laughs> saying yes. right he's using no get this uh ayn rand used to say that uh christianity was the ideal kindergarten for communism uh, words to that effect and she said it in different ways and the relationship between christian ethics and socialism and communism has long been pointed out by objectivists <laughs> talk about hearing it from the horse's mouth now now that marxism has collapsed and that attack on that at least nominal attack on christianity is gone he's actually citing Christian altruism, Christian self-immolation as the basis for this. And what is he doing? He's using religion, just as Peacock predicted, and he's using ethno-nationalism. We're the yes. victims of genocide. The Russians are being victims of ethno-genocide in Eastern Ukraine. So think about it. That is exactly what Peacock predicted. You'd have religious appeals, you'd have nationalistic appeals, and look at what they're doing they're grounding it in altruism christian altruism yep says it all doesn't it yeah exactly and, and, right you know and he goes on i just want to point out one more quote from putin that i thought it was really fascinating because you know when we're talking about the russians um holding on to the whole you know collectivism and suffering worship and duty worship uh he really and, and this is this is okay this is from Fe february 24th him putin um trying to basically talk about what the United States is like and, and where we are at. And uh, this is his description of the United States, basically, um, that uh, we are an actual empire of lies, by the way. <laughs> but it's hard, to, he says, it's hard to disagree with that, as it's true. Um, but let us not understate, the United States is a great country, a system forming power, just listen to the words that he uses here. All her satellites not only dutifully agree, sing along to its music, but also copy its behavior and enthusiastically accept the rules they are offered. Therefore, with good reason, we can confidently say that the entire so-called Western block formed by the United States in its own image and likeness, all of it is an empire of lies. So he, his vision or what he's trying to feed the Ru Russian people, and I'm sure a lot of people think this way because they have so embraced duty and collectivism and nationalism that of course he, the United States, when they say that they are founded on individual rights, it's a freaking lie. No, no, they, they are all uh, acting um, in terms of, just just like the Russian they're people just are like doing. us they're, they're, they're nationalists. nationalists they're imperialists and we need to do that too and their yeah. satellites are just obeying the orders of America it's right. not as though anyone believes in uh, any degree of freedom in the West they're just taking marching orders from the system building um, empire of lies that is America yeah Whew. yep so so no uh 
no progress there in the mind of Putin <laughs> from oh, no. 1992. <laughs> and he's counting on things that half of this country or worse believe. Right, right, right. Yeah. In, you know, including the modern left and the so-called imperialism of the United States. But how many people on the right still admire Putin as a strong man in the same way that they admired our last president? Well, at least he's strong. At least he fights. Nationally. Uh, he's yep. standing up for the people. Right. Exactly Creepy. right. Creepy. No matter how many people he kills, no matter what censorship he imposes, no matter what aggressive wars he engages in. That's he's right. a strong, noble leader. And mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He's not perfect, sure. but he's ours. He's our leader. Our leader. Yeah. So, so Leonard Peikoff, uh, again, sums up, as Amy said, that the, the solution is not anything that was being offered at the time, either by President Bush or former President Nixon. Leonard Peikoff says, my view is don't help the Russians or attack them. Just let them know we are militarily unbreached and we will trade with them freely and invest private capital if and when they recognize man's rights and have something to trade. And then he goes on to explain what we really need to do is export our ideas to them. And uh, that's absolutely Before right. Before we engage in open uh, promiscuous trade with them based on friendly diplomatic relations and detente with them. Before you do anything like that, before you'd even, in my view, before you'd even open diplomatic relations with a rights violating authoritarian dictator, they would have to acknowledge <laughs> individual rights. They would have to come towards us. And until that happens, really all we can, all they can benefit from is our ideas. Now he jumps to another subject, which at first seems unrelated. And some of the younger people listening may not even remember that this was an issue, but there was a time, and there's, there are still aspects of this that are true today. There was a time when Japanese automobiles, foreign-made automobiles, I remember the supply to Germany and BMW and some of the European companies as well, but especially Japanese automobiles were improving in quality at such a rate that Americans were losing the ability to compete. The 1980s, and again, this is by 1992, American cars just weren't selling the way they used to. It's interesting, we were just in London and you just don't see that many American-made automobiles in London. It's the strangest thing. We're used to thinking of, and you know, Amy and I are in Motown, the Motor City, the, the automobile capital of the world. And in 1992, Japan is taking over with Toyotas and Hondas and some of the best-made automobiles at the time. It's hard to believe in the 1950s and early 1960s, Detroit- oh, Made in Japan was junk. Junk and per capita, Detroit was one of the very richest cities in the world. Mm -hmm. Detroit today, and you think yes. about it, and American cars, General Motors cars, Ford cars, mm -hmm. were considered the very best, along with you know American computers, <clears throat> American, you name it, television, whatever. Japanese stuff was junk in the fifties. By the nineteen eighties, they were producing the some of the best electronics ever made. They were producing some of the best automobiles ever made. My, my dad went through the same trade-up procedure that Leonard Peikoff did at about this time, go, going from American cars to uh, a Japanese car. He bought a Lexus at about the same time. And I remember one of the cars he loved the most was his 60s Mustang, and it was a cool car, but uh, it was time at this point to trade up to, to obviously superior, better made, better value for the price cars that Japan was producing. No question about it. 
straight up to the Lexus, man, if you, if you yes. like good cars. And what yeah. Leonard Peikoff is addressing here is not the superiority of Japanese automobiles, but the American response. And he gives a great example from Lee Iacocca, who said at the time, Lee Iacocca, this was one of the great men in American automobile manufacturing, but fully succumbed to, well, I'll, I'll tell you what he said at the time. He's, he's talking to the Detroit Economic Club, you know, 25 miles from where we're sitting here. He said, <laughs> I for one, Lee Iacocca, I for one am fed up hearing from the Japanese. And I must say from some Americans too, that all of our problems are our own damn fault. Later, says, who does this remind you of? It's James Taggart and Alice Shrugs saying, but I couldn't help yeah. it. Don't blame me. Don't blame me. It wasn't my fault. Don't blame it wasn't my fault. It's that same evasiveness that you hear from, from James Taggart, only coming from Lee Iacocca, who at the time was America's most famous auto producer, yes. uh, the guy who got the government to bail out Chrysler. Uh, yes. Now, when a major company needs a bailout from Chrysler, that is not only an offense, obviously, to capitalism on the face of it, but it's an admission of total incompetence. We yes. can't compete with our foreign competitors. Exactly right. We can't compete. Whatever whatever you want to say, the shenanigans behind the scenes, the country is giving them bank, whatever they're doing. If you can't compete, you can't compete. And if Chrysler was producing automobiles on a par with the Japanese and it was just a matter of pricing, but it wasn't even that, the, the superiority of the automobiles at the time when, well, you remember when odometers only had five digits and turning the odometer, getting 100,000 miles on a car was a very big deal. And you're like, oh man, 100,000 miles in that car before it fell apart. And Japanese cars by the 1980s were putting six digits on their odometer and regularly getting well over 100,000 miles. My and wife's that, Honda Prelude had a 250-some thousand miles on it before she sold it. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and the only reason for that was they just weren't up for the American winters. The engine right. would run forever and just the body would fall apart. <sighs> but uh, you know, Leonard Peikoff quotes, and this wasn't an unusual attitude. We remember at the time, Americans who were, who were so nationalist about this. Uh, Harry Binswanger at the time put out his article, Buy American is Un-American, and explained why. Uh, Leonard Pigos Great quotes article. This. I highly recommend everyone yes. go out there and check out Her Dr. Harry Binswanger's article, Buy American is Un-American. Dr. Peikoff makes extensive use of the article in this portion of the uh, talk here. And it, uh, I don't recall the date, but it can be found in the Objectivist Forum from the 1980s. And it's an outstanding article. And, and he points out not only is Buy American foolish, not only does it make no economic sense, but it specifically contradicts American ideals. And to say by American itself is an oxymoron. Well, it's that nationalism versus patriotism, right? Yes. It's the my country right or wrong, even if Detroit is making an inferior product. And he even Dr. Peacock even quotes some guy who actually said, I don't care if they had cement tires. Yeah, I'd but, still but, buy an yeah. American car. Yeah, or the way, that, superior value. That was that was the manager of quality quality metal craft in Livonia, Michigan. Yeah, another who, company who, down the, the way, street from here. 
I, I looked up and they are still in business. Oh yeah, so Quality you, you Metalcraft is still a big company. You can go on Google or um, or Yelp or Facebook or however, and just give them a one star. Yeah, well, <laughs> and think about that. American consumers are supposed to take a worse car, a lower valued car, yep. more highly priced than a, than a, than a better car would have been. And that is supposed to be a sacrifice that we make we get a worse product we have to pay higher why why because of our national despite our inferiority here because yes. of our national collectivist pride in america wow yes. and let pickoff gives an example sure. of not just stupid but downright nihilistic and yeah. some of us will remember that this happened you saw this in television commercials and and in news stories he says the most eloquent and horrifying example was the chevrolet dealer who invited shoppers to destroy a Japanese truck with sledgehammers. Yeah. He says, did you see the malice that. and glee on the sledge people's faces? Now, that is so obviously nihilism, uh, just this nihilistic impulse to destroy in the name of what? Your anger. Although uh, he did give me a new noun here in the word sledge peoples. <laughs> that to me is my new word for the boil the oceans crowd. These people who say that, there's so much evil in the world, I would rather see the world destroyed than actually fight it. And, and again, I, I say that and it sounds like an exaggeration, but if you ever saw those news stories or those television commercials of people taking sledgehammers to a brand new Japanese vehicle, just the, the, there's nothing other than ugly, malice there. Delicious hatred of the good for being the good. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And envy, the worst kind of envy. Not, not the. I love the distinction he makes here too. Not the kind of jealousy that Americans used to feel. You know, someone gets a better car than them, and they think, "Oh, gee, you've got a better car than me. Maybe I can work harder and get a car like that myself." No, it's the envy that says, "I'd rather it be destroyed than anyone and get it." Yes, mm -hmm. he he does give the example. The old uh, this example has been given in a few different places. What is envy for an American? Envy is when your neighbor gets a nicer car than you. And yes. for the Frenchman, the envy is what you feel when your neighbor gets a prettier mistress. <laughs> the poor friend. And in, in Russia, it is wishing right. that your neighbor's cow would die. Now think and, about that. That is ugly. That's yeah. the envy in the negative sense that Ayn Rand talked about in the age of envy. It's and, a nihilistic hatred of the good for being the good. And here you saw Americans doing that with sledgehammers mm -hmm. to an automobile. Mm. Awful. That is that is envy. You know, in objectivism, we make the distinction between envy and jealousy. Jealousy can be a healthy emotion. It might encourage you to, oh, he's got something great. I really want that. I'm going to work hard and get it. Envy, again, as we define the term, is purely negative. It's purely nihilistic. It's purely destructive. And it was the norm at the time of so many Americans that Harry Binswanger had to write that article and explain, what is wrong with you people? Don't you see that this is un-American to say blindly by American? Right. And economists have long since pointed, since the time of David Ricardo, at least, you know, 200 years ago, economists had known that protectionism is a self-defeating policy. Uh, you know, Henry Hazlitt has a brilliant discussion in his classic book, uh, Economics in One Lesson, on this very point. To impose tariffs in response to someone else's protectionism is to just shoot yourself in the foot. To impose higher costs for American consumers on one product 
that'll per maybe protect one industry, but they'll be paying more for that price for that product than they otherwise would have, which means they'll have less to spend on everything else, and you'll hurt every other industry in America exactly to that degree. It never works economically. And yeah. all you're doing is propping up a less e efficient, less effective company that doesn't produce, you know, is producing shoddy, comparatively shoddy values. So it economically makes no sense, but it's not really a practical economic issue here. It's a, like an ethnic collectivist uh, issue going on here, a root and altruist uh, thing going on here. Just so. Now, before we run out of time, because as I say, Leonard Peikoff addressed three questions, three issues, and really many issues, but three primary categories of the issue in this talk. He says toward the end here, now in conclusion this evening, let me address the question, what can any one person do about it? For years, you've heard me come here and say, it's too soon for political action. We need philosophical education first. He says, well, that's still true, but I am not gonna repeat it tonight. Instead, in an unusual move, I'm going to come out for political action. And he says, for the first time, I'm urging you to vote in November. I think it might make a difference if you do it the right way. And the right way here, by the right way here, I mean the following, which I'll quickly elaborate. And this is what he said at the time, which needs to be explained, but I can't resist just saying it flat out. He says, vote Democratic for the presidency. Vote for any Democrat nominated by his party for the presidency, period. Now that he goes on to explain why George Bush, again, George Bush II, the first president, was such a disaster. But what's interesting to me is that this was, in fact, the first time that post Ayn Rand, any objectivists had been willing to say, here is specific political action I recommend. And that to me was interesting. He, no, he, great did, qualify. he did qualify, he said. Yes not the job of philosophy to develop a political tactics or that sort of thing. And so he did open, you know, especially in the question period too, he did say, look, don't, don't be cowed by, by the fact that it is just my opinion. Think for yourself right. on this. And reasonable minds may disagree on political tactics, but he did make a very specific uh, a political recommendation here. Yes. And in an unusual move for a Democrat. <laughs> Now, now that's what I wanted to bring up, because I, we can get into all the reasons why I think he was right. And I'm yeah. glad that George Bush was defeated. I yes. think there's a reason why the 1990s were the greatest economy that we've seen in the last 30 years. Yes. First, first balanced budget we ever saw. I don't give Bill Clinton the credit. I give the 94 Congress credit, you know, Newt Gingrich and the, the contract with America. But without getting into that, toward the end, when Leonard Peikoff explains very well why he recommended that, he says this. Let me say that what I have been telling you about the election is Peikoff's recommendation, not Ayn Rand's or objectivism's. A philosophy does not back candidates and does not vote. There can be legitimate differences among people of the same philosophy in regard to political strategy and tactics. So please don't be unduly influenced by my point of view. Think it over and judge independently. Now, that, that to me is the perfect thing to say if you are a philosopher you can see what the right political strategy is. And you're suggesting that to people without telling them, follow my recommendation blindly. Look how prescient he was. He was asked specifically by someone, well, don't you think that if the Democrat gets elected, that this will only be better for the Democrats and so forth? And he had a wonderful answer. He said, no, 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 no. I believe that this will cause 
the Republicans, this will help the Republicans take over Congress if a Democrat gets elected president. And of course, lo and behold, that was exactly what transpired in the next couple of years. Uh, by 1994, not only, uh, now Clinton, uh, Mrs. Clinton especially, had led uh, a major health care reform proposal, highly unpopular, and that helped uh, in the first set of midterm elections President Clinton had a couple of years after, and mind you, uh, really two years after, two and a half years after Peacock makes his talk, the Republicans took over Congress in a sweeping takeover, one that hadn't happened in 40 years on that dimension. And the Republicans in there, as Leonard Peikoff later would say, were actually a little better than previous Republicans, a little more willing to stand up for principle and against Clinton's uh, uh, socialized medicine proposals and other stuff. The result was that from 1994 to 2000, America had some of the best fiscal policy in its entire history. We had the first balanced budget in my life, in fact, the only federal balanced budget in my country in my lifetime occurred in the late 1990s and to the great benefit of the American economy. Precisely what Dr. Peikoff predicted would happen, happened. And that has ominous implications, it seems to me, for something like Joe Biden this year. Uh, you know, Joe Biden is doing a disastrous job, but split government is sometimes the best thing that we can have. Uh, uh, when the president is, say, a Republican and some e terrible economic thing happens, when Republicans are presidents, they will do some of, like George Bush, clap me, read my lips, no new taxes, he raises taxes. Again, and over and over and over, George Bush betrays capitalism. Yes. Almost as though that was his systematic policy to betray yeah. capitalism and to talk two sides of the story. So and capitalism is getting the blame for his mixed economy, socialist, pragmatist, uh, uh, problems. If there's going to be an economic downturn, we don't want the Republicans to get the blame for that because that'll be the free market getting the blame for that, even though the Republicans are no advocates of the free market. It'll exactly be like right. and, and we had the perfect case example of that. What did we get when George Bush and his policies caused the 2007 downturn. We didn't get another Republican elected after George Bush. We didn't even get a moderate Democrat like Joe Biden. No, we got that day's version of Bernie Sanders, which was Barack Obama. So that's exactly right. Right. He actually, although with some you know, political shenanigans and so forth, but he actually got a major health care bill passed. Much to the harm of uh, um, uh, customers of medical services in the United States. Right, uh, right, right. In, in, in the evening, in the late, late evening of Christmas Eve. Yeah. Well, it was pretty hard to fight it on moral grounds when George Bush had just right. passed Medicare expansion. Right. Exactly. And McCain votes for it at the time. So Republicans and their own compromises are, are you know, a disaster every time. But sometimes the most effective thing, Republicans, when they're out of power, somehow are a little more principled and a little more resistant uh, than when they're in the White House, when they're total compromisers and me tours. Um, so, you know, as far as I'm concerned, what we're having today with Joe Biden is a similar thing. We have a president who said he was no socialist. That's what got him elected. He claims he's a pragmatist, but of course, he's in the practical thrall of the far left progressives. And what's building up to happen is just another one of those turnovers where it looks like in November, the Republicans are going to probably sweep into power. And that'll be the major check 
on that and probably the only check we have on that. Um, so I, I, I tend to think we're going through very much the same kind of thing. Trump was a disaster for the Republican Party. Had Trump gotten elected, maybe not all, maybe not the gas prices to this extent, but a lot of the same economic problems would be happening. We'd still be having, in my view, some kind, some of this inflation stuff. Many of these problems would still be occurring. And who would get the blame? What would get the blame? Capitalism. When Trump was the least capitalist and the most pragmatist Republican president in my lifetime. Yes. So, you know, it's it's again. This sounds like Leonard Pigoff could have said this today. He says today. In effect, my analysis is like this: Republicans out of power are better for the country than Republicans in power. In power, they will pro promote the growth of statism. Out of power, they may promote governmental paralysis, which we desperately need. And I, I could not agree more. I don't think that is any different today than it was in 1992. Republicans will fight unless they're fighting a leader from their own party. Then they won't do us any good. They will only make things worse. And look at the usdebtclock.org website if you have any question about, well, didn't, for example, our last Republican president reduce government expenders? Look oh. at the numbers. Look at anybody's version of the numbers. And there is no question that it was an economic disaster. Trump was outspending Obama even before the COVID spending kicked in. Yes. And but when COVID, of course, it wasn't COVID that caused all the government spending. It was over the government reaction to a government lockdown and all that spending that they felt they had to do because they were ordering a months long, year long lockdown of the entire economy. So it was the result of not COVID, but, co but the COVID lockdowns and the economic devastation that caused. And then the government responded with, you know, what can we do but send out vast amount, you know, amounts of money to businesses and individuals who we've now in effect unemployed. Um, and so the spending was uh, not the result of COVID, obviously, but the government's disastrous reaction uh, and draconian shutdowns in the wake of COVID and the economic disaster that that resulted in. And that began under Trump, only co continued under Biden. Not to say that Biden's Build Back Better wouldn't have made things much, much worse. They would indeed have. But if there is a Republican Congress this November, at least they can put the final kibosh on any new major spending, which they will probably have the courage to do since they don't have the White House, but will only have Congress. So I believe for the same reasons that Leonard Peikoff does, I believe in uh, mixed government, uh, split, split government, because that's the kind of stalemate that at least keeps major government programs from coming into being. Yeah, so, so now back to Russia. And I, and I want to leave, I, I know we're wrapping up here, and I kind of want to yeah. leave it at, at a more positive turn. I think, um, I mean, looking back at what Leonard Peikoff said in 1992 about Russia and how right he was about it, um, and how it's all kind of just flowed out of, out of, out of their ideas that they've clutched onto for all of this for um, a century. So, I think that, I mean, at this point, we have so many sanctions on Russia, and hopefully we'll keep adding, more countries will keep adding to them, and they will, you know, wither and die, hopefully, and um, I think it, you know, after all this time, you know, after all these decades of supporting, you know, like Nixon was trying to throw money at uh, um, at Russia after the, after the uh, end of communism, 
it, I really do hope that this is perhaps the wake up call that Russia needs and the Russian people needs to stop their worship of suffering, stop their worshiping of failure, actually do what the, the one, um, the one minister that we quoted, you know, when he was talking about, we need to embrace the goodness of money and selfishness. Um, I don't know, may, maybe that will actually happen because of all of this, after all is said and done, hopefully this will not lead to anything worse than it is right now. And hopefully they will be able to, Ukrainians will be able to um, declare victory, hopefully in the next coming months. A Russian and, defeat could be and, putting down the Putin government. And let's yes. hope that, and let's hope the Ukrainians can can truly defeat the Russians in this. Right. Not that the Ukrainians have a perfect government; it's they're driven largely by nationalism and religion too. They but are. at least they're they're fighting off an aggressive authoritarian dictator, and one can only hope that they succeed in doing well, that. But you know, I yeah, okay, sorry, that have got to fix it, and at least yes, there are now yes. Russian language editions of Ayn Rand's books that are getting in there. At yes. least. There, there are new ideas that are making it into Eastern Europe. No you know, question. And, and Putin made a special point of talking about what he thinks America is. Oh, we're just a bunch of duty-bound hypocrites living uh, lies. And, um, you know, for all those Russians with TikTok channels and, you know, all of these, you know, so, you know, basically money, making money through social media, actually finding things that they can empower their lives with. Um, I think he's going to have a hell of a lot hard, harder time. I don't think it's just, uh, you know, people in other countries parroting or obeying what, you know, Russian pop music, you know, or not Russian, right. American pop music. I mean, American pop, you're right. um, it, it is people actually embracing things, actually embracing their own individual, you know, individualism, their own empowerment for, for successfully leading their own lives. And that. I think that has Putin worried. And I think that that's why he put that statement in his speech to try to counter that, um, which I don't think he's going to be able to do effectively. It's getting um, harder and harder for authoritarians to keep out information. You know, yeah. real, so. the internet is expanding and smartphones are going everywhere. It's getting harder and harder for dictators to keep out uh, the truth about what's going yes. on in the rest of the world. Yes, and the I, better ideas will get in as long as enough of us are keeping the better ideas out there. <laughs> and and, and we have some wins. I mean, Leonard Peikoff was talking about you know Eastern Europe and how it's you know not going to re recover you know unless they actually change their ideas um, and embrace ideas of individual rights and reason and capitalism. Um, I think that uh, and I may be wrong, but I do believe you know Bulgaria, for instance, is. Um, they've embraced uh, at least somewhat free market economy. They have. And, they have. Um, one of my yeah. one of my great mentors, my, one of my law professors, the late Bernard Segan, was a, an advisor to the Bulgarian government on the construction of their constitution, and they wow. didn't adopt all his proposals. But Bulgaria was open minded. Hungary has been open minded. To some extent, Poland has been open minded mm -hmm. to more capitalistic liberal reforms. But you'll notice even in Eastern Europe nationalism and religion are still the dominant ideas yep. among christian democrats the ones who aren't you know the overt socialists so we need better ideas we need objectivism we need rational ideas and individualism to penetrate into western europe uh, and that's the long-term solution here and leonard peikoff as well at the end of this lecture some notes about tomorrow does give some reasons for optimism 
And so I encourage you, if you're thinking his talk ended on a negative note, it did not. Absolutely should give it a listen. There's a great Q&A afterward as well. Yeah. But thank you, James, for your, your thoughts on this talk. Again, 1992, Russia, the trade wars, George Bush, seems like it was very journalistic. And but it turns out his ideas in regard to those are timeless. It's an outstanding listen. If you haven't heard it yet, I encourage everybody to uh, listen to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, uh, there is nothing more powerful than a correct philosophy analyzing the moment, because what it will do is it will do just that. It'll give perspective on the past and it will give you the best guide that we have to an unpredictable future. And when you look at Ayn Rand's statements, for example, about the rise of Islamicism and the potential of Islamic terrorism and so forth, before her death in 1982, and Leonard Peikoff's early comments on it, or you listen to his speech here, what I find absolutely remarkable, and even almost breathtaking, you'd think it, they had some mystical powers of prediction, when of course all they had was the power of reason and the power of their fundamental ideas, but they could see as if it was a crystal, as if they had a crystal ball where the world was going. And boy, did they nail it. Exactly right. And just like Leonard Peikoff himself, these ideas never get old. And I'm gonna use that just to say one more time, if you're not already a member of the Ayn Rand Center UK, go to aynrandcenter.co.uk, sign up for a membership. If you're not already a member of, and this is brand spanking new as of yesterday, you can actually join the Ayn Rand Center UK channel and become a member. Click any of the green icons you see at the top, anybody who's already a member, or just go to the channel's main page and join the channel. You can do that for just five pounds or $5 or five euros a month. And the reason I think of that when I think, well, these ideas never get old, Leonard Peikoff never gets old, is it is the Ayn Rand Center UK, after all, that did bring Leonard Peikoff onto the channel, not just once, but a year later, twice, to talk to us, those of us who knew he was retired from philosophy and thought, maybe we'll never get to hear him speak again. But if you look on the channel, you will find two videos of him speaking at length, both on his birthday and then a year later. Great stuff which I have enormous gratitude to ARC UK for. If you're not a member, become a member. If you're not a member of the channel, sign up for that. James, thank you so much for this discussion. Very much appreciated. And we will do this again. Thank you so much. You guys are the best. Take care. Thank you, Jimmy.